Okay, yes, Out the Rabbit Hole is here today. Sorry, we're getting started just a little bit late, but we will have a fantastic show. Uh, our usual opening music there from the Stooges, I Gotta Write, and had a little something there from uh, Wayne Kramer after that, uh, Stranger in the House, so a uh, little, little bit of that tune there. Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our... Uh, May 11th, 2007 edition of the show. It's uh, 4.14 on the clock. Uh, we had a little uh, mishap outside the station. Uh, had trouble actually getting here, so... Uh the fact that I'm here and I'm doing the show, I guess, is a good thing. <laughs> it's a very good thing. All right, so a couple quick reminders uh, before we get started. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to get in touch with me, give me some feedback. It's RG Larson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash out the rabbit hole. So, yes, we've got a fantastic show today. Gnosticism, the early Christian sect that was driven underground centuries ago, was until recently barely known outside of academia. Though the reality-slamming religion has of late been overtly featured in a couple of uh, pop culture offerings, Gnostic themes have been slyly and regularly appearing in Hollywood movies for about 30 years now. Uh, we have, uh, why have so many studio directors and producers been drawn to examine a belief system that questions all of reality, that suggests everything you know is wrong? English professor Eric Wilson ponders the, this question and many other mind-bending queries in his book Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision in Film. He examines the uh, genre he refers to as Gnostic cinema and how the experience of partaking in this ritual can be transformative. The related traditions of Kabbalah and alchemy are also considered, as Wilson discusses the films The Matrix, The Truman Show, AI, Dead Man, Vanilla Sky, Blade Runner, Dark City, Jacob's Ladder, Existence, 13th Floor, Donnie Darko, and many others. Professor Wilson is my special guest today. And Eric Wilson, are you with us? I am with you. Thanks for letting me be on the show, Robert. Oh, uh, it's uh, my pleasure. It's great to have you. And uh, again, sorry for the little bit of delay in getting the show started today, but here we are. That's fine. <laughs> All right, so let's let's start off real basic. Uh, some of the listeners may not be familiar uh, at all, really, with Gnosticism. So let's, you know, basic definition of what is Gnosticism. Sure. Gnosticism is actually, as you might imagine, a, a, a very complex, heterogeneous idea. It, it grows out of several sects that thrived in the 2nd and 3rd centuries in Rome and around Alexandria. Um, I, I could go on for hours about the, the various nuances of Gnosticism, but, but the basic Gnostic myth is this. The idea is that there are two gods, uh, an utterly transcendent, perfect god who dwells outside of time and space, and then a rather stupid, dark, evil god who actually created our world. And the world that this evil god created is a world of illusion, corruption, defilement, pollution. And the idea is that all of us are trapped in this world, and therefore living in a world of illusion, until some Gnostic savior comes down from this utterly transcendent realm above where the good god dwells and shows us that we are indeed in this realm of illusion and awakens us gives us knowledge, or gnosis, gnosis, showing us that our true home should be in the spiritual realm beyond time and space, and we are called back and hopefully can get back there by 
denying our attachment to this evil world. That's that's Gnosticism in a nutshell. Yeah, it, it's it, it sounds uh, very sci-fi, and and yeah. and, and it's uh, now if you take this Gnostic belief system, then going by that, the God, the world that we live in is, is really considered to not actually be real. That's right. And it's the, the creator of this uh, false god that is sometimes referred to as the Demiurge? Yeah, the Demiurge, which is Greek for maker, comes from Demiurgos. Um, the idea that this, this, this false god made a world of matter, matter being an inferior substance, uh, a, a kind of unreal substance, as you said, um, and, and we're all, by, being, by virtue of being in bodies, we're trapped in this, this unreal world. We're, we're living in a dream or a realm of illusion. And so the, the God that uh, of most people think of, of Christianity, uh, uh, or Ju- the Judeo-Christian tradition, Jehovah, uh, according to Gnosticism, is the false God. Well, that is exactly the case. And this is why the, the movement was, was violently suppressed in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and also as late as the Middle Ages, the idea that Jehovah or Yahweh of the Old Testament is this evil god. In Gnostic traditions, he, he's often called Yaldabaoth, um, a strange name. But it's just a way of highlighting the fact that he's not really Jehovah, he's not really Yahweh, he's not really God at all. In some Gnostic traditions, he's actually cast as the devil. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, so, and also in, in some Gnostic strains of thought, then, uh, Jesus was a... Uh, was interpreted in a, in a very symbolic way, and that Jesus was trying to uh, bring forth this uh, truth that there was a, a real God behind the one that everyone thought was the real God. Or that's, that's exactly the case. Now, now some some Gnostic traditions have very little to do with Christianity at all, but others are quite Christian and and read the Christian tradition against the grain, against orthodoxy, saying that Jesus, when he talked about the Father, was not talking about the Old Testament God, but the Gnostic God. And this Jesus never was really a human being for the Gnostics, but remained a spiritual creature throughout and was trying to awaken um, his disciples to the, to, to, the, to the true knowledge, to the true way of being, um, which would take place outside of this world entirely. And also, according to some Gnostic uh, beliefs, the serpent in the Garden of Eden was actually a good guy who was trying to bring a message forth from the uh, real uh, God. This is one of my favorite strains in the Nasser tradition. Um, the, the idea that the, the true God um, who dwelled in this, this utterly spiritual realm known in the Nasser tradition as the Pleroma or the Plenitude um, saw Adam and Eve suffering in this garden where they were made to do nothing but work. And they were reminded of their servitude by this tree of knowledge. And this good God sent down the serpent as a Gnostic messenger to give Adam and Eve true gnosis or knowledge and awaken them to their true home in the spiritual world. So the fall in the Gnostic tradition was not a fall at all, but actually a rising, a good thing. Um, Adam and Eve actually leaving the Garden of Eden, which was kind of like a work camp <laughs> in the Gnostic tradition, and, and setting it out on their own to try to find their own way of finding a spiritual enlightenment. Okay, and now, now I'm hearing the way you're saying this now, and I'm thinking of some of the movies I've seen recently, such as The Matrix, and I'm thinking, Oh wait a minute! That that they're they're kind of retelling that story in a certain sense. So so we'll get into that as we go here. But uh, let's first, you know, as we've kind of defined Gnosticism now, let's uh, go to what do you mean by Gnostic cinema? Well, I was really interested in, in several films that that have come out in the last say ten years um, that 
in overt ways, explore the idea that the world that we live in is nothing but a realm of appearance. And we are trapped in appearance either through technology or through greed, and we need some kind of being from outside of this world to come in and remind us that our, that our true nature is not in this realm of appearance or greed, but in some realm beyond. And you can immediately see how a film like The Matrix explores this in really interesting ways. Yeah, so The Matrix obviously was, like you said, about the, that Gnostic interpretation of the Garden of Eden myth. It, it was very serious parallel in that the, the, the main character believes that he is in the uh, real world, and then he gets a message from somebody saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, uh, you know, and that the message is, who, who does he get the message from originally? Uh, well, from, from the Lawrence Fishburne character named Morpheus. Yeah, and, and right. that uh, and Trinity, Trinity and Morpheus, who are, who are on the outside of the appearance, the world of appearance, and are sending um, the Keanu Reeves character Neo messages via computer, um, trying to alert him to the fact that that he is indeed trapped in a, in a computerized matrix, um, and that he needs to escape that. And of course, he's given that great choice by Morpheus to take the red pill or the blue pill, and one pill will cause forgetfulness and he will always live in this computerized world never knowing who he really is the other pill will awaken him to his true being and that's exactly the pill he takes and he becomes neo um, a sort of gnostic savior who realizes how to get inside the matrix and control the matrix and therefore free people from the matrix so so the pill that he took was equivalent to eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge absolutely that's exactly the case and so it, it, without using any outright uh, biblical references, they, they are actually doing a Gnostic retelling of the Garden of Eden myth. That's precisely the case. I, um, the Wachowski brothers uh, re- really um, put Gnosticism into the pop culture. Philip K. Dick did it before they did, of course, but the Wachowski brothers um, in that film condensed the essence of the Gnostic tradition. Yeah, we've we've talked plenty on the show about Philip K. Dick. We can maybe get into that a little more as we go here. Uh, so, Gnostic cinema, it, it has to do with the, these types of movies. Uh, Dark City, another one, uh, The Truman Show, and then there's several, uh, Vanilla Sky. Now, but when you talk about Gnostic cinema, you're talking about a whole experience, not just the, the, the types of movies, but the, the process of as a person going into this dark cave of a movie theater and that whole thing that goes on that is very actually ritualistic and sacramental could could you explain that a little bit I'd be happy to you many many of you who took philosophy in college or even in high school will remember that Plato in his Republic um, said that the world of illusion was like being in an eternal movie theater in the allegory of the cave he pictures men being chained uh, to a rack um, endlessly watching shadows flashing across the wall of the cave. And he likens this to being trapped in the world of appearances. It's like watching a movie. Well, what I say is there's a counter-tradition that sees movie-watching in a much more positive way. There, there were in the ancient Greek world the mysteries of Eleusis. Um, and in the mysteries of Eleusis, the initiate would go down to a cave, a dark, dark cave, and there he would undergo various transformative experiences, usually involving images on the wall of the cave flickering in the torchlight. And this initiate would come out of from, from the cave with a new sense of his, his being, a new sense of self. So I, I maintain that, that these Gnostic films that I look at are very much aware of the movie experience as not an entrapment in illusion, but a possibility of entering into a dark, chaotic world where the old way of seeing is left behind and a new way of seeing is awakened. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So it, it's if you go if you see one of these movies, you can get a uh, the gist of it if you're watching it at home on DVD. But it's not really the full experience if in, if you're not going into a movie theater. That's my sense, and we can e- we can even think of some of those old theaters, the great theaters out in Los Angeles, um, like the the Chinese theater, these Egyptian theaters. They're very exotic theaters, and they're meant to be places where you suddenly see the world in a different way. You're ripped out of your habitual, familiar world, and you're thrown into a dark world where you can't really tell one thing from another. Um, and you're forced in those moments to think about, well, what's my relationship to these other beings here? What's my relationship to the darkness? What's my relationship to the light? This can only happen in an actual theater, I, I, I suggest. I guess you could turn the lights down low in your in your room at home and get the same experience, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> and, and so you talk about these things, these kind of like gaps, and there's this opportunity in these, these gaps, and the sort of gap between the reality presented on the screen and the reality you've sort of left outside the theater, and there's a gap between, or a juxtaposition between the white screen and the dark, of the theater, and, and the, those are little gaps that the consciousness yeah. has an opportunity to, to blossom there into this other place. Well, this is, this is a main argument I have about all the Gnostic films I look at. Now, the ones that fall in Gnosticism proper, the ones that fall in the Kabbalistic traditions, the ones that fall in the alchemical tradition, are all films that are self-conscious of a duplicity that runs through them, and that is this. On the one hand, these films are exploring a worldview that says everything in this world is appearance, stifling, it keeps us from apprehending the truth, but at the same time, these films are appearances, they are illusions, they are not real, um, they are based on the illusion of, 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 of uh, an optical illusion. So these films at the one time, on the one hand, are expressing this kind of esoteric worldview, saying that all appearance is false, on the other hand, they are exoteric commodities out there in the world, appearances trying to make money. So I suggest that when we watch a film like The Matrix, which is simultaneously a, a, a kind of esoteric exploration of the nature of appearance and reality and also an exoteric commodity meant to make money, we are faced with a kind of gap or a, uh, or a paradox, and we have to think through that. We're forced to think the Gnostic film becomes a, a site of meditation in that way. Yeah, so it's this huge opportunity, and I like the way you, you talk about how these movies are, are, when you think of the Hollywood studio system, it, you know, it's, it's all about the, the money. It's a commercial product, and it's all about how many millions we can make off of this and how we can push the, the uh, what do you call it, the... Uh culture the, um, the culture industry the culture industry yeah so so there's that going on and and then so you're thinking how can something that has anything to do with with really serious philosophy or or a transcendent experience or or, or high art come out of that and sometimes it sort of slips in and and and, and then again there's when it does it, the juxtaposition is a very weird thing and i i love that that way you describe that so why do you think that so many uh directors producers studios ha- have chosen to do these kinds of gnostic uh, kabbalistic alchemical films over the last uh, quarter century is is it a reaction to the times and in as jung would say an urging from the collective unconscious is, you know is it an issuance from the pleroma well, why do you think that's happening now well i i argue in my book that that we are in the midst of a gnostic revival because we we are faced with the possibility for the first time in the history of the world of virtual reality um, and this is another weird situation. Um, 
what we would think of as the most superficial commodity of pop culture, of postmodernism, virtual reality, digital technology, suddenly becomes a motivation to think about in very deep ways the relationship between appearance and reality. Think about what virtual reality does to us. It, it asks us to think about the question, what is real, what is not real? And, the, and the, the line between appearance and reality is blurred in our digital age. So suddenly we're forced um, to think about Gnostic issues. And you'll notice that most of the films that I, that I meditate on in the, in the book are very, very much in the science fiction tradition, trying to think about what the role of technology is in shaping us as human beings. And almost all of these films are very much interested in the possibility of virtual reality, that we can somehow um, escape our so-called real world of the flesh and enter into another virtual world, a computer world, a digital world, and there live as if we are really alive. So, so the, the technical, uh, technological place we're at is... is uh sort of created this, uh, uh, accidentally or not, the, the, this uh, opportunity for, for Gnosticism to re-emerge. That is the case. Yeah. Right. So, all right, this is Out the Rabbit Hole. I'm Robert Larson. Uh, we're actually going down some rabbit holes today, and um, maybe we'll come back out, maybe not. That's actually your choice. Uh, it's KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. And my special guest today uh, by phone is Eric Wilson, Eric G. Wilson, and we're discussing his book, Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision in Film. And, uh, Professor Wilson, where uh, you have a website or anything you want to give out so people can uh, find out more about what you're doing? Uh, I do have a website. It's um, www.wfu.edu slash wilsonEG. Okay, and uh, you, you also have a MySpace page that's got some great stuff on it. I do have a MySpace page, and my MySpace name is Eric G. Wilson. Okay, cool, and yeah, you can find it's a nice looking page. There's a lot of good information there, and the books are available at all the usual places. Well, sure, Amazon.com would be the best place to order the book. Okay, Secret Cinema Gnostic Vision in Film. Uh, yeah, so we uh, let's talk about a couple of these movies. Well, one in particular uh, that I just uh, had seen years ago when it first came out, and uh, hadn't thought about it too much until I, I reread your. Uh, interpretation of it in the book and that is dark city and and it wasn't a huge uh, box office uh, success but it was a very interesting film can, can you talk a little bit about that yes th this film i argue inflects a, a very interesting gnostic idea that grows out of a gnostic thinker of, of the second century called valentinus and he argues that the fall of spirit into matter or eternity into time grew out of a psychological error um, when, when, when the, the first god, the good god, started to create various beings that would surround him, like goodness and love and, and, and the sun, these various creations of his immediately tried to interpret him, tried to fit him into some kind of closed, fixed category. And in doing that, they created error. And out of error, our physical world issued. So we are all trapped in error. But, we're, but this error is, is, is a dream. It's not real. We create the reality we live in through our psychological disposition. And this is exactly what Dark City is about. Um, you see in this film uh, a, a group of, of beings called the Eternals who are like Gnostic demiurges. They create realities in which they can study human beings like a scientist would study rats in a maze. They're trying to figure out what the nature of the human soul is. Why are they doing this? Well, they are dying. They're a dying race, and they think that the human soul carries some kind of vitality. 
So to find out what this vitality is, they basically use humans as rats, creating realities for them, and humans don't understand that, indeed, these are false realities. Along comes a character named John Murdoch, played by Rufus Sewell, and he has the same power that these Eternals have. He can create reality with his mind. And what he does, in contradistinction from the Eternals, is once he figures out that he has this power, he creates on a stifling world in which humans are treated as rats, he creates a beautiful, open, flexible, capacious world of light and sand and ocean, um, giving us the idea that we can all create our own reality and we can create a better reality than the one in which we're living now. Great. You, you have a quite, a, quite a gift for uh, doing uh, synopsis of, of films. <laughs> well, I've seen the film about 50 times, so don't be too impressed. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, that was the part that didn't quite make sense to me, and you, you kind of had it all, all <laughs> figured out there. And But the thing is about that, and, and I agree with you, it's, it's, it's one of the best in the whole genre of what you call Gnostic cinema, is it does a few things. It, it presents some ideas of Gnosticism, so it forces you to think about that. It forces you to question reality, and then you know it. it and then it does that thing you were talking about of creating that gap of, of of what you perceive as reality, and then what you now think may be reality. And 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 okay, you can go one way or the other, but you can also just play in that gap and and yeah. really expand your consciousness. And it just does that, and, and it also works, it's got so much symbology in it, and not just like Gnostic symbology, but symbology in, in, in that has a lot to do with a lot of philosophical ideas. Well, modern philosophical ideas, I guess you're thinking about um, the, the, the basic postmodern paradigm that reality is not perceived, but reality is made. Um, the idea that we're all living in this kind of constructed reality, um, constructed by various uh, powerful ideologies. And we can easily see how that's working in our current political system, how, how the government is trying very hard to, to create a kind of reality um, in relation to the problem of terrorism and wanting us all to buy into it, um, and basically trying to reduce humans to rats in a certain way in a maze. So what do we have to do to get out of that? We have to try to use our very strong imaginations to imagine counter-realities um, that will be just as powerful but also more... Um, well, how shall I put it, more charitably disposed toward um, goodness and peace. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that. And, and there was one person who was within the administration or connected to the administration, uh, might have been Karl Rove, but it, it, somebody was questioning his uh, sort of false reality that he was putting out there about the Iraq War or one of these things, and he says, uh, you know, you, well, the, all that stuff, that's that's for the reality-based community, and <laughs> we, we sort of create our own realities. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was it was quite uh, telling, and then and so it, it makes you, uh, wow, okay, if you understand this whole Gnostic cinema thing, you're like, okay, wow, they've given us a little clue there, and, and now we can run and create a a more charitable reality, as you said. So, an interesting thing uh, occurred to me while reading your book, and it was uh, that Gnosticism is sort of like the ultimate conspiracy theory. (laughs) Yes. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, or not a bad thing at all, and and so... um, let me ask you this. Would it be fair to say that, that just entertaining conspiracy theories in general can be an, exp- uh, can be an exercise in expanding consciousness? Well, it, it can be if you practice conspiracy theory in a certain way. 
I, 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 would, I would suggest that one, one kind of person who believes in conspiracy theory is radically egocentric because his life has no meaning. God seems to have gone away, so he thinks there's got to be somebody in charge here. It must be some secret group, and they're persecuting me. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the kind of perverse side of conspiracy theory. But there's another Gnostic conspiracy theory idea which suggests that um, – what, what, what the status, what the given is, what the status quo is, what people tell us reality is, must be questioned, must be questioned rigorously. It doesn't mean that we question everything and live this kind of sweaty, fevered, paranoid existence. It just means that we have what I would call a kind of healthy, charitable skepticism toward the given. Um, and that's what we can really take away from Gnosticism. We don't have to become esoteric. We don't have to become cultish. Um, we don't have to join a sect. But we can just practice this kind of healthy skepticism towards cultural givens that might open us up into different ways of seeing that might be better than the ways that we currently see. Well, there used to be a group, I think they were in Northern California, they referred to themselves as the Agnostic Gnostics. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, I did too, because it's sort of like, well, we this concept of Gnosticism is very interesting in this thing of having the Gnosis experience, but at the same time, we maintain our skepticism and question everything, and it's sort of actually a place where, where I actually come from or or aspire to. And, and so they're, they're also, you know, and, and I totally agree with you as far as conspiracy theories, which we talk about. About a lot on this show, and but I always approach it from a place of agnosticism. Is that you know some people fall down the whole total paranoia trap, and then other people, it, it's just it, it is an exercise in expanding consciousness and yeah. awareness. So, but there is there's this fine line. That's right. And uh, Philip K. Dick uh, certainly exemplified this this fine line between spiritual awakening and crippling paranoia. Well, that is the, that is the great glory and tragedy of Philip K. Dick's life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's you know, he, he wrote about these things, but he lived some of these things. Yeah. He actually, the uh, ex, the book Valis was only a slightly altered, uh, uh, well, not slightly altered, but somewhat altered autobiography, I mean, of, of things that actually happened to him. And, and, and he got to this place where he was felt like something transcendent was contacting him and giving him information that, that was useful information that was helping his life, but he also got really freaked out at times and felt that, you know, the government or, or some sinister force was, was after him. And it... it uh, yeah, and it comes out in his writings in, in yeah. very marvelous ways. Well, as, 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 as the great um, Gnostically um, attuned poet Walt Whitman teaches us, when we have an experience of cosmic consciousness, we can say, I am the world, and reduce everything to ego, and then become kind of weirdly paranoid because we feel alone in the universe. Or we can say, I am the world, um, and emphasize that part of it, and feel like we're part of something beyond our ego, part of something transcendent and marvelous and beautiful. And I think, I think Philip K. Dick constantly vacillated between those two poles, doing that kind of sense that I am everything, and, and therefore that I, I feel as if I'm, I'm a, alone and there might be powers out there after me, um, or um, I'm part of something large and marvelous, and I, and I have this sense of, of being attuned to something great and grand. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think he he had there was some salvation in in his life, even though there was some some tragedy and some struggle. There was some salvation in, in that he did publish so many books that it got out there and and that have reached so many of us. Yeah, and inspired so many of these films. I mean, actually, when you knew you talk about you know Gnostic cinema, and how important would you say Philip K. Dick is to to that development? 
Well, I, w- I would say he's absolutely essential to it. Um, I-, I mentioned earlier that, that our, our, our digital age is largely responsible for the, this uh, overabundance of Gnostic films, but it was Philip K. Dick who in the 70s and, and very early 80s before he passed away in 82 um, was very much aware of, of how the genre of science fiction, meditation on, the po- on machine, how machines interact with humans, he was aware that this becomes a place for Gnostic meditation. And his, his theological trilogy, Volus, The Divine Invasion, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, plus other books like The Andor's Dream of Electric Sheep and um, Ubik, are, 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 are very Gnostic in tone, very Gnostic in atmosphere. And almost all the films that I think about could have grown out of Philip K. Dick novels. Um, only one of them did, Blade Runner, um, that I talk about, but almost all of them could have grown out of a Philip K. Dick novel. Yeah, yeah, and Bl- Blade Runner is... Uh more you know, you break down in your book of films th- that are gnostic uh kabbalistic and alchemical and uh blade runner you uh put as in what category well the Kabbal- I, I could have easily put it in the gnostic category um but i put it in the kabbalistic category um kabbalism is a is a is a uh a trend in jewish mysticism that grows out of the gnostic tradition um basically i'm centered on the idea that there's a kind of perfect human being um, living beyond time and space, known as the Adam Kadmon, or the, it's like Adam Unfallen. If you can think of Adam before he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, this is a perfect human being, which the Gnostics called the Anthropos. It's an androgynous, perfect human being. And in the tradition of Kabbalah, um, there were certain practitioners who tried to, to imitate this perfect human being by creating what's known as a golem. Um, a creature made of mud that comes to life through a magical word and for a moment reflects that perfection that Adam had before he fell. And I argue that the character um, Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner, embodies this idea of human perfection. And this is a fairly counterintuitive idea because it suggests that the artificial humanoid need not be a violation of natural law, as it is in Frankenstein, but can be a, 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 a sort of... Um, manifestation of human perfection, because you'll notice in that, in that film and also in, in, in Dick's novel, um, the baddie character is far more human than, than the humans themselves. <laughs> yeah, so it makes it a brilliant uh, film, yeah. and the, the thing that, that uh, we consider the, these uh, very human traits, or, you know, when we say uh, uh, somebody is being inhumane, it's because they're not acting this way, but, you know, these things that we consider very human traits, such as compassion... It's it's the android, uh, or they could call them replicants in that movie, yes. who ultimately shows that 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 uh, uh, compassion and, and turns it around on, on the the guy who is supposedly the human, yes. and uh, is, is becoming very uh, detached from from that type of uh, feeling, compassion and empathy. That's exactly it. And Steven Spielberg's AI explores the same situation. If you recall in that film, the young boy. Um, wants nothing more than he's a machine, but, but, he, but he has much more love in his heart than the various humans that surround him. And his great desire in life is, is to become a, a full human being, which for him doesn't mean getting rid of his wires and circuits, but being able to have a loving heart and an intimate relationship with a parent. So it suggests that humanity doesn't have anything to do with anatomy, flesh and blood and hearts, or, or circuits and screws and cogs, but humanity is a kind of ideal concept that most any creature can embody through certain forms of behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philip K. Dick talked about this in a lecture where he said that, uh, you know, it works both ways, uh, that a, a machine could be made to have uh, th- that quality of we th- that we think of as human, and a person that we consider, you know, that is a flesh-and-blood human can 
surrender that that yeah. thing and he talked you know he liked to use the example of Nazi Germany and the the That's death right. camps and how that they they became very machine like and they were signing off on papers that were going to say okay uh, uh 1500 people are going to be exterminated today and they just signed it off like it was a machine and 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 nobody said wait a minute I'm killing humans here uh maybe I could just at least take a couple names off the list and you know ease my conscience that way and they they just became like robots well, that's right, and you recall in the film that, that, the, that the human protagonist played by Harrison Ford, Rick Deckard, the word Deckard recalls Descartes, who, of course, <laughs> believed that all creatures of time and space, all material creatures, were machines inhabited in some way by soul. So it could well be that Deckard, throughout most of the film, is a machine. It's even suggested in the film, in the director's cut, that he is a replicant himself. Um, and he actually learns from Rutger Hauer's character, Roy Batty, how to be a human being. So by the end of the film, he can show compassion for the, the Sean Young character, um, Rachel, and, and actually begin to imitate Roy Batty, a machine, who's more human <laughs> than he. It becomes kind of mind-bending after a while. Um, and I, would, I argue that in, in the Kabbalistic cinema, that's, that's the prime meditation. If the meditation in the Gnostic cinema proper is the uh, relationship between appearance and reality, um, the meditation of Kabbalistic film is the relationship between human and machine. Yes, yeah, well, just this is mind-bending stuff, what we like to talk about here on Out the Rabbit Hole. <laughs> and, uh, yes, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. And, yes, I'm, I'm Robert Larson doing the Out the Rabbit Hole thing today with my special guest, Eric Wilson. We're discussing his book, Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision in Film. And, Eric, uh, you want to give out the website again? Sure, it's www.wfu.edu slash Wilson EG, and I also have a MySpace page. My MySpace name is Eric G. Wilson. Okay, great. I urge you all to uh, check those out and and to check out these movies in... in <laughs> Dark City, we were talking about earlier. Just yeah, get get the DVD. Unfortunately, you can't go into a theater and watch it now. It's not playing where, but you know, like pick up that film and some of these others talked about in the book. And and if you have the book to read about after you watch the movie, you'll get so much uh, more out of it. So uh, it, it's really worked wonderfully for me that way. I just uh, it, the the this, the whole recall thing. Uh, you know, seeing these movies and then hearing what you have to say about it. And and I already kind of because I'm interested in this, had this idea that these films had Gnostic inclinations, but really you, you, you got to feel so much more that was in it, uh, Eric. You, you really got underneath it all. And, and hey, if you had to do it, watch the films 15 or 20 times. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that service. <laughs> well, I became, I became kind of mechanistic myself. I became obsessed with watching these movies over and over and over again. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to um, follow up on that last thing we were talking about uh, but uh, well, let me ask you this. Do you remember when it was and, and how it was that you started noticing this trend in film? Actually, it, it came about um, through, through a, a, a kind of Philip Dickian experience, I might say, um, a kind of, a kind of um, confluence of, of three different um, currents at the same time. I remember um, I, was, I was about 
10 years ago, and I was reading a lot of the poetry of William Blake. William Blake, of course, being a rather gnostically minded person. And I remember um, I'd been up all night because the power had been out because of an ice storm. I remember walking out one morning um, after an ice storm when the sun was out and, and the world was just aflame. It was shining brightly. And I thought, wow, this is probably how William Blake saw the world all the time, um, as if it were just these various crystals of light. Um, and that very day, being underslept, I watched for the first time Fritz Long's Metropolis, um, which is all about this kind of uh, industrial magnet who is like a Gnostic demiurge, who keeps all his workers underground, um, working in machines, basically becoming machines themselves. And it's only when his son, along with his lover, go down into the, down into the underground areas and teach the workers that there is indeed a world above ground, that the workers become enlightened and, and rebel against the the mechanistic world of, of, of the factory. So it was this kind of weird Dickian moment of being underslept, kind of my mind blown by, by shining eyes, <laughs> watching, Philip K., watching Fritz Long's Metropolis, that made me think, wow, there's seriously something in this film, and I need to watch films that are related to Metropolis. And that's what pushed me to Blade Runner. Um, and I watched that soon after and became absolutely obsessed with the film. Um, and really it was the cinema that led me to the Gnosticism and not the other way around. Interesting, interesting. Wow. So, so you, had not, you didn't have much familiarity with, with Gnosticism before that. No, no, the films came first. The wow, came that, first. really, that's very interesting. Yeah, for me, I, I, I had some friends turn me on to Philip K. Dick back in the, uh, uh, probably the late 70s or, you know, uh, early 80s and started reading some of those, and then I think Blade Runner about appeared around that time, and uh, then I, it, I guess they both kind of came together at the same time for mm-hmm. me. But but I read Valis pretty early on, and st- what's this Gnosticism thing? Yeah, and, yeah it, it's it's a um, it, it uh, if nothing else, it, it's 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 a very uh, fun game to play with your mind. I, and, and I know you're suggesting that it's not just a game; it, it it's more than that. But it, it uh, um, but I, I think you actually make a point about that. If you just do make it into just a game, you you're kind of missing the point. If, if you make it into a game, you're missing the point? Yeah, of this Gnosticism. Uh, I mean, you don't want to get too obsessed with it and become paranoid, but if you, if you make it just like just a fun game, then you're, you're missing the point of the, these Gnostic ideals? Well, in a way, I mean, if, 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 you just, if you just play these kind of endless intellectual games with yourself, if you kind of endlessly flip-flop reality into appearance and appearance into reality, it can become a kind of solipsistic activity um, where, you, where you're simply kind of looking at yourself all the time. I mean, to, to take the Gnostic myth seriously, you really have to question your own ego. You really have to question your own views and try to escape your, your narrow ego. And this is where someone like Carl Jung becomes very important to me. Um, who constantly says that there is beyond the ego something called the collective unconscious. And the way to become a full human being is to find a balance between the collective unconscious and the ego. And actually, Jung, in one of his works, likens the collective unconscious to this Gnostic idea of the pleroma or the plenitude. Mm. And he likens the ego to that, that, that fallen place, the, the, the space-time continuum. And he says for, for, for a person to be a whole human being, he has to reconnect the ego or the fallen space-time continuum to the collective unconscious or the pleroma. Well, that was just going to be my next question. Is, is there a relationship between the collective unconscious and the pleroma? And there, there you go. So, yeah, I guess the well, answer there is... there it is. It shows up in this really bizarre work that um, was only published, I think, after Jung's death, called Seven Sermons to the Dead. 
you know, Jung was deeply imbued in Gnosticism and actually in a very dark time in his life, around the time that he broke from Freud and around the time of World War I when he had all these horrible reveries of, of the earth being consumed in a violent ocean, he started having visions of, of these various ghosts and figures around his house. And he thought that one of them was Basilides, a Gnostic father. And this person spoke to him the vision that he wrote down in Seven Sermons to the Dead. And this was the time in which he inflected his own psychoanalytic ideas through the grids of Gnosticism. So, yeah, yeah, check that book out. What, the title of that again? Seven Sermons to the Dead. I think you can get it in the Gnostic Jung, which was published um, by Princeton University Press in paperback, edited by, um, I'm looking at it right now, edited by Robert Siegel. Um, it's called the Gnostic Jung, um, and it includes that work, Seven Sermons to the Dead. So, um, is it correct to say that to be a Gnostic, uh, one has to get the call and accept it and not slip back into the comfortable false reality? Absolutely. I think to be a Gnostic is to be uncomfortable <laughs> and, and to be a little bit melancholy, um, mainly because if, if you feel too content and too happy in the world that is around you, you kind of get seduced by it and snowed by it and mesmerized by it to where you eventually start thinking, well, everything's really okay. Um, so you always have to feel a little edgy, a little uncomfortable, a little insecure um, to keep that what I call the Gnostic edge on. I've always been attracted to women like that. As have I. I married one. <laughs> I love it. I love edgy women. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll do another show about uh, dating advice for Gnostics. <laughs> Any- <laughs> All right. So we're we're about out of time here. I'll, you know, let's see. Um, one last thing I want to ask you about before we close out. So it seems that, you know, we're talking about the, the whole idea of Gnostic cinema and how this has an effect on an individual. Now, and you get this choice to be transformed. Do you think uh, that this whole genre is having an effect on, you know, not just individuals, but, but culture at large in a sort of meta way? Well, I, I see it in my students. That, that's all I can really talk about it with any degree of authority. I, I, I teach at a small liberal arts college in North Carolina, um, and, I, and I show my students these films, and I, and, I, and I teach the literature that is connected to these films, and I see them, at, and thinking about these films, start, start to question um, ideologies that they've grown up with all their lives. Um, they start questioning George Bush. They start questioning the right-wing ideology. They start questioning our our, our activity in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I, c- I can really see these films as being not mere pop cultural trifles, um, not mere commodities, but, but they really do, in, in a very pleasant, pleasurable way, force people to think in ways they wouldn't think otherwise. And this is the brilliance of the Gnostic film. It kind of infiltrates the system from the inside, because these Gnostic films are parts of the culture industry. They are capitalistic commodities. Um, and in this way, they're kind of on the side of the evil forces of the world. But at the same time, they do, in a very sly, subtle way, um, plant little seeds of doubt in the viewers that might lead to different ways of thinking about the world. They are subversive. They are subversive, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but what they are subverting is, uh, it's a good thing that they're subverting what they are subverting, my well, opinion. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, so we're just about out of time here. I want to... Uh, Again, the book is Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision in Film. Eric Wilson, the author, Eric G. Wilson. And Eric, uh, give us the, the uh, web address again. www.wfu.edu slash Wilson E.G. Have a MySpace 
page. My MySpace name is Eric G. Wilson. You can purchase the book on Amazon.com. Okay, and uh, you have another excellent book, and it is so uh, fascinating to me that I wanted to have you back, and we're going to do that in two weeks. And uh, yes, and tell us a little bit about that book we're going to be talking about in two weeks. Well, this is a book that actually grows out of the Gnosticism book. It's called The Strange World of David Lynch, um, Transcendental Irony from Eraserhead to Mulholland Drive. Okay, great. I am quite looking forward to that. I got the copy at home that I'm going to get started on tonight and watch a couple of those Lynch films that I haven't seen yet, and we'll have a great talk about that. Eric Wilson, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. I had a great time. Yeah, me too. Okay, talk to you in two weeks. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. All right. Eric Wilson, yes, and that book was Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision and Film. And we have got some great shows coming up for you. Um, And and next week, I'm going to have, never done this before, an Out the Rabbit Hole, a live in-studio band. And uh, the reason I'm doing that is because this band is just... uh, They transcend uh, all the other types of uh, music I've been seeing and hearing around uh, town here or just hearing all over. Just really unique band. Los Dugans, and uh, you, you're definitely going to want to tune in for that next week. Uh, they, they do a music that's just, just I don't I can't overemphasize this. It's just not like anybody else, but they've got some great messages in the songs and, and go back to really uh, draw from American Roots music, but put their own sort of modern spin on it, and, and you're going to love this. Okay, so that's next week, Los Dugans, live in studio, and in two weeks, Eric Wilson will be back to talk about his uh, book that discusses the films of David Lynch. And so that's it for me here on Out the Rabbit Hole today. Will Bruzzo is uh, in the lobby, ready to go in about uh, four minutes with the aggressive moderate. It's KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson, and you can hit me up on MySpace, myspace.com backslash out the rabbit hole. Also, you can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. And don't forget the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. I'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>